Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 137 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. My guest this week is Ray Martinez. Ray served three consecutive terms as mayor of the city of Fort Collins, Colorado, between 1999 and 2005. He was later elected to the Fort Collins City Council, serving a term from 2015 through 2019. Ray is an active member of several local advisory boards in the Fort Collins area. He's also the author of 15 books, with the most recent one titled, Are You Leading?, published in 2023. And he is the founder of RM Consulting, Inc., where he provides consulting services in many different areas, including writing and publishing, business development marketing, public relations, and more. But long before Ray began his service as an elected official, he was a police officer and detective with the Fort Collins Police Department for 25 years, beginning in 1974. I invited Ray onto the podcast to discuss what was arguably the biggest case of his career, which began one night in October 1980 with a wife's frantic call reporting that her husband had been shot in their apartment. From there, it spiraled into a massive story involving international arms traffickers, an ex-Army Special Forces hitman, and a North African dictator and the Central Intelligence Agency. But before we dive into this story, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever wondered if you have what it takes to perform a covert operation yourself? A long infill or exfil on foot with a pack on your back and your life on the line? If so, there's one way you can find out. SOE Expeditions is now offering guided expeditions that recreate some of the most arduous missions of World War II. This is not an afternoon walking tour. This is a multi-day foot patrol through rough terrain, keeping to a timetable just like the men who came before you did. You will put yourself in their shoes and find out exactly what you're made of. This is not for the faint of heart or the out of shape. There are several expeditions each year with the next one traveling to the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, where you'll memorialize the 80th anniversary of the Special Operations Executive's mission to kidnap a German general and spirit him off the island to Egypt. This seven-day expedition will cover 80 miles of mountainous terrain along the SOE escape route to the coast and to safety. Then, coming in March 2025 in Norway, is a trek along the route of Operation Ripe on the 80th anniversary of the only sabotage mission by the American OSS to take place in Norway. All expedition participants will be equipped with a callous cold-weather jacket made by Kila at no additional charge. Are you tough enough to follow in the footsteps of the Special Operations Executive? Find out more at soeexpeditions.com or click the link in the show notes of this episode. Ray, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, honestly, with all of the different endeavors that you're involved in, I'm kind of surprised you even had time for an interview. <laughs> well, I do keep busy, that's for sure. I can tell. I can tell. So I learned about this particular story not that long ago. And within probably five minutes of beginning my research, I realized that I had to bring it to light here on the podcast any way that I could. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm really happy that you accepted my invitation to talk about it. Well, 
I've done this, I think, one interview with a paper one time many years ago, but I don't often talk about this, and there, there's some good reasons for it, but I think enough years has gone by that I feel confident enough to be talking. Good. Well, I'm, I'm very honored in that case. I had expected you had given more interviews, honestly, but I'm very glad that we're able to bring it to light to my listeners in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I want to go back to the beginning of your career in Fort Collins. What was it like working in Fort Collins? It seems to me like it was kind of a small town at the time, or just when you were beginning with the police department after you left the army. Yeah, it's a population back then, probably close to 100,000, maybe not quite 100,000 people. And uh, I was hired in 1974. Prior to that, I worked uh, with the state drug unit uh, as an undercover drug agent. One of my first arrests was arresting a police sergeant for selling me cocaine and heroin. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I've had had some adventurous cases. and, And then working with the police department in 1974... They kept me undercover for a while, and then eventually I went back to the patrol division, then came back to the detective bureau again, and then got promoted to sergeant in 1982 and worked patrol again, then back to detectives again, starting up our new drug unit, then eventually retiring as a sergeant in 1996. Okay, well, yeah, that's a very long time period. I'm sure that you have a lot of stories to tell, even though we're only focusing really on one today. Yes, this is one of many. You're right. So... At that time, when this began, like in 1980, up leading up to that, could you have imagined that anything like this would happen in Fort Collins? Was this like a, a, a brand new uh, eye-opener for you, do you think? Absolutely. In fact, this occurred on October 14th, 1980. And I would venture to say we were the, one of the first or the first terrorist case the United States ever had. Hmm. Okay. I understand. So were you the first, I'm, I'm going to go back to that night, of course, were you like the first officer on the scene or were you called as the as the detective on shift after police officers had already arrived or, or what happened exactly? I want to take it from your perspective, learning everything for the first time. I was what they call the on-call detective. So we took turns being on call for the week and I happened to be on call that week and heard the call, heard about the shooting. So I responded knowing that I'd have to go anyway. And the case sounded very familiar to me. And I just thought it seemed unusual. When I got there, it got even more revealing just because I saw who was shot, who the wife was. They looked like they were from the Middle East somewhere. And I actually asked Farida, the wife, I said, is this Faisal, the one we're supposed to be keeping an eye on and looking out for? And she said, yes, right away. So I knew we had an international case right away. Okay, right. This is this is Faisal and Farida Zagalai who were already known to the department. I guess you'd gotten like a warning from the FBI or something along those lines. Yes. And that was really highly unusual in itself, just because the FBI said, look, these people need to be protected. It was was not only Faisal, but it was another friend of his that was living in Fort Collins as well, which I don't recall his name now. But they wanted us to give them some gun training on how to use a weapon so they could carry a concealed weapon. And the chief issued them a concealed weapon because their life is so much in danger. And they were considered on the number one hit list of Muammar Gaddafi. And we thought, Muammar Gaddafi's interested in these people in Fort Collins, students at CSU, mm-hmm. you know. So it, it, it did make you wonder. And as soon as that happened, and, and I connected the dots on that, I called the chief right away. We got other people uh, responding, other detectives. And Farida was the 
an amazing person. She, she literally has a photographic memory and she saw the violence. She saw what took place and she was able to give us a artist conception drawing of the suspect, which if you was to put that drawing along with the suspect's face, Eugene Tafoya together, it's almost identical. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. So you had a, a good start in some ways. So I would have to assume, since you mentioned the concealed weapons permit, that I, I guess Faisal was there. Both of them that were there on like student visas. So I would imagine it's extremely unusual to give an, an immigrant on a temporary visa a concealed weapons permit at the, around that time period. Well, and the motive was interesting. I mean, like, why? Why is he number one on the hit list? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people that spoke out against Muammar Gaddafi, but why this one? Right, right. So the FBI had specific warnings, like his name was on a hit list already, and that was what they passed to you, not just that he was, you know, kind of a public figure or anything. Right. That's correct. They they knew he was on a hit list, and we called the FBI immediately when that happened and, you know, processing the crime, seeing everything was going on simultaneously while rushing a conceptual drawing of the, the suspect at the time to the airport, because it was logical that if it was really a hit man, he's probably headed to the airport trying to get out of the country or something. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sure enough, we had a, a shuttle bus driver that recognized the picture and said, no, I, I saw him. He just got off. He got off on back then was known as Braniff Airlines or Quantif. It was Quantif Airlines. And he said, I dropped him off right here and he made me stop and where I don't normally stop. And he jumped off and took off running. So we had the FBI all over that trying to run down the manifest of who got on and on the planes and that and that particular airline, which you can imagine is tens of thousands of people. Sure, sure. Okay, yeah, that seems like a very difficult needle in a haystack kind of situation, even with his unusual behavior and the drawing. So can you tell us what you found when you arrived at the scene? Like there'd been a shooting there, obviously. Like yeah. what exactly was the result of that? Well, I, I saw Faisal Zaglai <laughs> being loaded into the ambulance. His wife was hysterical and I was trying to talk to her and got, you know, what information I could from her. And of course, she wanted to go to the hospital with her husband, and uh, we were able to get enough information for her to get things going with our, our 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 artist, you know, to do the drawing. It wasn't our artist; it was actually a high school teacher from Windsor that was a great artist and did a lot of composites for us. Hmm. So he was just exceptionally good. We were just lucky in that vein. But and and then obviously, you know, chasing down the airport leads. The window was smashed. There was a, in the crime scene of the, the apartment where the assault took place was a tie, a clip-on tie that was left behind. That was one of our, our clues that we were trying to run down. Like, who made this tie? Where did it come from? Who purchased it? Now, that's, a, that's another FBI lead that had it. They, they found thousands of stores that used to sell that brand of tie and that kind of ties, and they actually ran down composite drawings to all these different stores to see if by chance they remembered anyone like this buying a tie. And so, so we were chasing, in other words, we were chasing every other possible lead that there was because there wasn't a whole lot of significant leads at the point, at that point in time. We just knew that Faisal was shot in the head twice. The first shot kind of went through his mouth and out the back. The second shot hit his left eye, just above the left eye went through the cranium and circled around his cranium and landed in the palate of his mouth, which severed the optic nerve in his right eye. So he's blinded in one eye. Oh, man. Incredible. Two shots to the head, but he, he survives. He anyway, survives. Which is the he last survives. thing you would expect. Absolutely. So 
this was was it a, a 22 or a 22 magnum i think was the bullet is that right something you know, like that we didn't know at the time but we had a professor at csu who who really specialized in this it was kind of like a hobby of his and he talked with the emergency room people and he managed to figure out how they could get a three-dimensional x-ray of the guy's head because the bullet that we found in the apartment was smashed. You couldn't get any ballistics or determine a size or anything Mm. like that from it. So they actually did a three dimensional type of X-ray and we determined it was a 22 Magnum that was, was using, which coincides with what Farida was saying, the wife, when she said the gun was like black or, or she said blue and silver which really kind of connects with your average Saturday night special type of gun. Mm-hmm. So we, we figured that's what we we're looking at, you know, 22 mag, probably a Saturday night special. And, you know, that was our, our biggest lead other than the composite. Okay. I see. And so on the night of, they had been expecting a visitor. Like it wasn't a surprise that he showed up, but of course they were not expecting the visitor would be a hitman. Right. He He was, Eugene Tafoya posed himself as a IBM representative wanting to interview the FISO for a, a job to do translations, which isn't unusual. That's not an unusual task. So he knew what to do. He got himself into the door, knocked on the door and identified himself, you know, as representing IBM. And, and then things went awry because the conversation ensued and Tafoya told Faisal, you better keep your mouth shut and quit talking about Muammar Gaddafi. And all of a sudden just shifted. And he knew that this guy was probably going to do something to him. And, you know, the stories vary here. But as Tafoya pulled out his gun, Faisal went after his gun, which was under the couch cushion. But he obviously couldn't get to it in time. And Tafoya fired two shots at him, thinking that he was dead. He left him. I think he left, thought he was dead because he shot him twice in the head. Well, a normal person probably would think that. That's probably true. Right, right. And there he laid, and Faisal laid there on the ground while Eugene Tafoya took off running. But just during that moment when the skirmish was going on, Farida ran to the bedroom and pounded on her bedroom window so frantically that she broke the glass. Marty Jarman, who was an eyewitness who lived right next door, the next door apartment, looked out her window, saw Eugene Tafoy run out the door, and she saw him with a gun in his hand. And as they were going to run, well, actually, I'm, I take that back. Marty did not see the gun. But as they were running, Marty went after the guy. That was her instinct. She was a very athletic type person. Oh, wow. And her instinct was to run after him. And as she started running after him, she heard someone from another apartment said, watch out, he's got a gun. So she stopped. And when, when she went after him, he stopped by the car looking back at her because I think if she would have come any closer, I think he was going to shoot her. Hmm. So it was good that other eyewitness had said that. So obviously we needed to find out who that eyewitness was because he must have saw something. So, right, right, so you know, one pursuit after another. It turned out he didn't really see the crime itself. He just heard it, looked out the window, saw him with a gun, and saw Marty chase him, and she and he cautioned her. Okay, I've got it. So, since you mentioned that Faisal was being warned off of of talking about Gaddafi, what exactly had he been doing to raise his profile so much that Gaddafi would put out a hit on him? Nobody knows, and the FBI wouldn't tell us. 
And that, oh, really? There's where the mystery lies, is why we came to a conclusion at the end, obviously, but the FBI wouldn't tell us. They just, they just said, well, he, he was just on the hit list, but we didn't know exactly why and how they knew he was on the hit list. And so we started trying to figure out some potential suspects. Well, the FBI was giving us photographs of people that, you know, maybe Faisal and Farida might recognize. So we were doing a lot of photographic lineups of different people, some guy named by Kirkla, some guy named by Turple. These guys, all of a sudden, we find out later that they're involved in gun smuggling and the FBI knows this and they haven't really told us that. And mm-hmm. we thought, why are gun smugglers you know, a, a hitman, and why would they be involved? We had the address book of Eugene Tafoya eventually, because what happened as we were pursuing this investigation, what really tripped this lead, I'm going to just jump ahead a little bit because there's so much detail, but what really tripped this lead is that when it happened in October, and I think it was in January, so November, December, and January, and then all of a sudden we get a, a call and I had no idea about this call, but apparently a mother called and said, hey, my son and his friend are standing by a ditch where they have tripped over a gun in a ditch, which was really on the way out of town from Fort Collins, which is a logical travel from where the apartment was. You know, it'd be logical to toss the gun in the ditch and get rid of it if that's what he was trying to do. So mm-hmm. when... These kids, they found a gun and some spent bullets. They didn't see the spent bullets. They just saw the gun, and their mother told them to cover it up. Well, her mother was an emergency room nurse who kind of knew what how police did things, and she told them, just cover it up, wait for the police, and, and that's what they did. And the police put it into evidence, and we have back then, you didn't have a computer system, so you had hand files. So we had colored sheets for evidence sheets, property that was recovered and a different color sheet for reports and a different color sheet for something of supplementary reports. It was just color coded. I just happened to be flipping through a stack of papers and I saw this property sheet and it said a handgun found. And I said to myself, what if, just what if, well, that what if turned out to be, it is. Wow. <laughs> and wow, we, wow, wow. we, we, Pulled that gun out, took a look at it, and it was really rusty colored and everything, which would be typical over that time of season. And and we sent it with the FBI agent and said, send this to their, your headquarters, get it cleaned up, and let's see what it looks like. Well, sure enough, long story short, it turns out to be a blue and white type of gun. Saturday night special turns out to be a twenty two mag. So mm-hmm. we know that said. Meanwhile, I went back to the ditch and we kind of scoured through the ditch there and the sand and the dirt and everything. And we found two spent rounds, two spent shells that were thrown in the ditch with it. Well, two shots fired, right? Mm-hmm. So it's everything's matching. <clears throat> Another long story short, we got the serial number, traced it down. It was purchased in a pawn shop by another guy named by Tully Francis Strong. Now we're thinking, who's this guy? So... We went to the pawn shop and and tracked down Tully Francis Strong. Turned out he was a Green Beret. And Mm -hmm. this isn't unusual for Green Beret people after they get out to become mercenary type soldiers or we better know them as hitmen. This Mm -hmm. isn't unusual. It's not a slam on Green Beret people, just that this happens. And we knew that. So we thought he could be our suspect. So we went to interview him. And he didn't even come close to matching. 
So we had confronted him about the gun. You bought this gun. And he said, yes. And he said, where is that gun? Well, we know where it was. We want to see what he was going to say. And he said, well, I sold it to a friend of mine, another fellow soldier in the Green Beret, Eugene Tafoya. So we started tracking down who Eugene Tafoya was. We find a, a drunk arrest on him in Albuquerque, New Mexico, pull up the photograph and did a photographic lineup with Faisal and Farida. And immediately they picked him. It was, they said, that's him without a doubt. And one of the things that she described was that this person, Tafoya, had one finger that was crooked. It looked like it was broken or something, but it was just a crooked finger or just some kind of deformity. And then she described in the kind of ring he was wearing with uh, Indian type jewelry. Well, in the long run, that's what we found out when we arrested him. He had that crooked finger. He had that jewelry she was talking about. I mean, she was an amazing witness. She picked up yeah. on everything. So anyway, once they identified him, we got a UFAP warrant. That means to unlawful flight to avoid prosecution through the FBI mm -hmm. to arrest him because he lived in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And so we, the assistant district attorney and I flew down there to Albuquerque. While we're on the plane, we're writing this affidavit for a search warrant. And we get the search warrant taken care of, signed and ready to execute. And we took a team of Albuquerque officers with the K-9 unit and the FBI team, drove down to Truth of Consequences, New Mexico, and we told the sheriff that we had a search warrant and we were going to go over there and execute it. And the sheriff was mad at us because he said, why didn't you tell me this before? Well, you know, in small towns, you don't always tell the sheriff everything, oh, especially in a high classified case like this, because we did learn that Tafoya was a demolition expert. So we didn't know if the house was going to be booby trapped or what would happen. Mm -hmm. So we surrounded the house, approached it, and, you know, Eugene Tafoya answered the front door. He, when he answered the door, I knew it was him. I said, Eugene Tafoya? And he goes, yeah, what do you want? I said, I told him, I said, I'm Ray Martinez, a Fort Collins police detective, and I have here with me the FBI, and I have a UFAP warrant for your arrest, and we have a search warrant for the house. And he backed up right away. We didn't know what he was going to do. So there's like, you know, six of us trying to get through the front door at the same time. And oh. took him took him into custody, and boy, did we find a boatload of evidence! And we found a map of the apartment complex. We found receipts that he used. How dumb this is for a hitman! He used his Mastercard to charge his rental vehicle and things that he used to to purchase. And so we had him placed in a hotel in Fort Collins the night before. He did all this this mess that he was he was involved in. And so we, we knew we had the right person. Well, on top of that, we found some mini cassette recordings. Now, some of them were very hard to hear and understand. So we took them to CSU and CSU has an audio department. And the professor, I think his name was Hodgson's, he, uh, he helped us really decipher those tapes and clear up the background noise and, and things. And lo and behold, we discovered that this guy had done a firebombing in Waterloo Kitchener in Canada. And he, he firebombed the house in a car of uh, David Menina, who was a multimillionaire that specialized in making surveillance vehicles for um, government agencies, whether it's local law enforcement or the U.S. government. 
and we found some telexes, conversations through telexes that Eugene was talking to a guy named by Angus. Well, we didn't know who Angus was, and he was talking to another guy named by Blue Eyes. Well, Blue Eyes, we found out, was James Dean. James Dean happened to be the sergeant, retired Green Beret sergeant of Eugene Tafoya. We found out they were both, including Tully Francis Strong, in a special covert operation by the CIA known as Operation Phoenix. And that operation was designed and set up to attack the generals and leaders in North Vietnam. That was their sole mission. So they're mm-hmm. on a special mission. They all were specialized in their training and what they did. So these guys are, are very experienced and, and the whole Green Beret unit tied somehow to the CIA. So man, this is spiraling. Oh, it's it, it gets even better. We wanted to know more about Eugene's contacts because he had some people in his address book that we found that were very significant, and some were New York addresses. So I got a hold of NYPD and talked to their detective unit, and I said, "Do you know some of these guys and their names?" And they said, "Absolutely." I said, these guys are known gun smugglers. These guys are highly involved in racketeering of some sort, you know. And and he said, I told him, I said, well, I'm willing to share the address book with you if that helps you. But I'd like to see what information you have on Eugene Tafoya and, and wh- what else they had. Because they did have some intelligence on them. So they did. We shared information. So I got a hold of the FBI because I was becoming a little weary about how they were dealing with this case. And not everything was consistent with what they were saying. I, I detected sometimes some sense of deception of what they were saying. So there's a lot of conversation that tie with that. And you and you start connecting the dots, you start becoming suspicious. And during that time, I asked him, I said, can you see if there's any intelligence on, you know, Gene Tafoya and, and some of these names in this address book with NYPD? So they said they would follow up on that. And they got back with me and said, there's nothing. We have absolutely nothing. Well, now I knew they were lying. I mm-hmm. knew they weren't telling me the truth. And then now the question is, why? Why are they lying? And they kept emphasizing that, you know, oh, this is a local shooting case. That's how you have to treat it. Well, now we're going to uncover what we can, you know. So during this ordeal, I was contacted by a former CIA agent. Kevin Mulcahy. Kevin Mulcahy calls me out of the blue and he says who he is. And I said, well, how do I know that? And he gave me some validation and he knew all these players we were talking about. He knew them by name. Kevin had been left the CIA because he, he was just fed up with the way things were going. And the guy was extremely intelligent. And one of the things he said to me when I eventually met with him in Washington, D.C., He said, Ray, you know, the FBI and the CIA run this country. The president doesn't run this country. And most importantly, the CIA is really in charge of this country. (laughs) That's what I said. I said that. I said, (laughs) wow. (laughs) And he was dead serious. But if you look at the entourage and the intrigue, what goes on in our country today, you see so much CIA involvement. And then recently you read about the CIA admitting their association and connection with the Kennedy assassination, you can't help but think that maybe Kevin had something going here. Maybe he knew what he was talking about. And I think he does. 
So Kevin was feeding me information and I was telling the FBI, I said, what about this? What about that? Just throwing questions out that were relevant to what Kevin Mulcahy was saying. And they were asking me, how do you know that? And I said, what does it matter? <laughs> I said, what does it matter? The point is, it's evidence. I think we should try to go, get a hold of Switzerland because he had contacts in Switzerland. I said, I'd like to know what the Swiss government has to say about this and the intelligence that we have on Tafoya and, and his ties to Canada and everything else. Before we go on, I want to let you all know about a new educational tool you're not going to want to miss. It's the Gray Man Briefing Classified. By now, I think I know my listeners pretty well, and take it from me, this briefing is exactly the news and educational reference source that you've been looking for. You'll get breaking news updates from all over the world on topics including planned protests and riots, low-intensity conflicts, natural disaster alerts, cyber attacks, supply chain disruptions, and more. You'll also get access to articles that help you build your own skills, including urban survival, home security, counter-surveillance, escape and evasion techniques, and more. And this is much more than just a newsletter in your inbox. Joining the Gray Man Briefing Classified also includes invitation-only channels on the Telegram and Signal apps for convenient real-time updates. The newsletter subscription is normally $5 per month, but if you use the code GBCSPYCRAFT, you can save 20% each month for the life of your subscription. I'm already a member myself and have been reading and learning a lot since I first subscribed. Look it up yourself at graymanbriefing.com. That's gray with an A, graymanbriefing.com. And use the discount code GBCSPYCRAFT to save 20% right from the start. Well, I called Switzerland police and they said they do have information on it. And they provided me with some stuff. And and then I, you know, in, in the meantime, is inquiring with the FBI, another pronged test, I would call it. And the FBI said, Switzerland has nothing. I said, well, there's lie number two. And then I called Scotland Yard talked with their number two guy, John Guy, and he, well, prior to talking to him, I said, what about his contacts in England? Do you think Scotland Yard has anything on him? So they followed up with their attache in England, supposedly, and they came back and said they have nothing. So I called England. I called Scotland Yard, talked to John Guy, and he says, we've never said that. The, the FBI has not inquired with us about that. We do have information. So I knew then that, you know, this is a cat and mouse game here. And I knew then they weren't telling us the truth about anything. I couldn't trust anything that they were telling me. And this isn't to discredit our local FBI agents because our local FBI agents, I, you know, they had a personal friendship with us as a community. And I could tell by the way they said things that this is what they were supposed to say. You know, and they, they couldn't mm -hmm. come out and tell me directly that they can't tell me, except for there were some things they did say. He said, well, we can't tell you that. You know, well, so your question is obviously why? Because to me, it's relevant to the investigation. Because I only asked pertinent things. I wasn't asking about anybody's personal life. That was just, it was all germane to the investigation. And so when they give you those kind of answers, you know something's up, something's wrong. And... So things start evolving. We ended up arresting Tafoya. We figured out the bombing in, in Canada because the FBI said there was nothing there. 
And so I went to Canada, spoke with their inspector up there, and they flew me out for the trial. They actually had a trial against Tafoya because of the evidence that we had. And we went to trial, and he was found guilty. He only served, I think, a couple of years for that. The biggest case he was found guilty on was tax evasion because we could prove that he had received $50,000 down to kill Faisal Zaglai. And if Faisal Zaglai turned up dead, then he would get the balance of the $50,000. Well, oh, wow. I see. During that time, Tafoya was calling the hospital, wanted to know if he was dead or alive. So, <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? So, we're, well, wow. because that's, that's his bread and butter. That's how sure. he, he makes money. So, that, you know, all those things tied together and the mixture of events that went on is absolutely uh, astounding. And, and how much, all of a sudden, I realized how much the IRS, the ATF and the FBI do not communicate with each other, and they all have their own king of the mountain game that they play. They're they're mm-hmm. independent of each other. They don't really work with each other. They kind of work against each other, and that's back then. I don't know how much that has changed or not today, but I would guess there's still that little riffraff. But then mm-hmm. we find out, you know, through David Menina and other people, we find out who this guy Angus is, and it's Edwin Wilson. Well, Edwin Wilson, you know, this is a big, big cover-up, I think, by the FBI. Edwin Wilson and Kevin Mulcahy said that it turns out Edwin Wilson is in charge of covert operations for the CIA. And Edwin Wilson is playing double agent. He's living in Libya, won't come back to the United States. And Muammar Gaddafi is feeding him with money and everything that he wants. And Edwin Wilson is trying to make all the connections that, you know, Muammar Gaddafi wants. So Gaddafi ordered the hit on Faisal Zagalai through Edwin Wilson. Edwin Wilson gets a hold of James Dean. James Dean gets a hold of Tafoya. And that's how the connection is made. So Angus is contacting Blue Eyes. Blue Eyes is getting a hold of Tafoya. And that's how those telexes were going back and forth. Mm -hmm. Tafoya even recorded telephone conversations with Blue Eyes and Angus about, hey, I made the hit. I did the bombing. You know, what what more do you want? It's in the paper, which he was right. And so I don't know if they weren't feeding him in a timely fashion or, or what. But those things just went back and forth and we had all these recordings. So it, the connection was obvious, you know, and mm-hmm. so the prosecutor, the DA, Stu Van Beveren, agreed that we needed to follow through with this so we can get to the root cause as to why this homicide, because you have to have a cause for attempted shooting. You can't just say, well, he just shot him and, you know, and leave it at that. You know, you got to show a cause for what's happening. So in the long run, this became really international news. The Boston Globe, Good Morning America, all these shows were were highlighting this story. And as I learned that this, I decided to go to the CIA office myself and talk with them and say, look, why can't we get along and work together on this? And the CIA attorney told me, he said, you can't talk anything about this case tied to the FBI former CIA people or former FBI people, you can't talk to anything and say anything in court about this. Otherwise, you'll be subject to prosecution by the Justice Department. So I didn't know if I was going to walk out of that office arrested or not. That's how it made me feel. 
So you felt mm-hmm. kind of spooked. And I told him, you know, I was young and gutsy. And I told him, I said, well, if you do, you'll have to do it on live TV. And when I'm testifying in court, because I'm not going to hide my testimony, I'm going to say what I know. Mm-hmm. And, and then I walked out of there and I thought, am I going to make it out of here? <laughs> so it, <laughs> it does leave you in doubt, you know? Yeah. Anything's possible at this point. Right. And then one of the guys that they showed a photographic lineup, wanted me to show a photographic lineup was a guy named by Curricula. Curricula was serving time all of a sudden. Curricula calls me and he has a conversation with me saying, look, he says, I can give you more information, but you got to help me get out of jail. And I told him, I said, Curricula, I can't, I can't do that. That's not my role. And I have no pull in that arena. So so he, he was desperate, and he was willing to roll over on people. Well, Frank Turple had committed the same crime that Turple did, this gun smuggling. But it turns out Frank Turple was living in Cuba, and, and he never did get prosecuted. He never did get arrested. And I, I'm just going to make an assumption here. I think Turple was working for the CIA as a renegade, and he probably burned Kirkula. And that's why Kirk was in prison. Frank Turple wasn't. Oh, okay. You know, so I see. That's how these little scenarios get unfolded. But what we are pretty certain about now is that the reason why they wanted Faisal Zaglai dead was Faisal was working on his doctor's degree at CSU. Faisal was leading a coup to overthrow the Libyan government. Faisal was going to be the next leader of Libya. Hmm. So. Now the motive really changes. Now you understand the bigger picture as to why this is happening. And here we got international case, international terrorism taking place by Muammar Gaddafi through one of our U.S. ex-Green Beret people, which is really puts a nasty twist on the whole thing. And so you can see why the FBI wants to cover this up because it's given a bad name to the U.S. because they got a CIA guy, Edwin Wilson, that's gone bad, and they can't get him back to the United States. Well, apparently this information, you know, reaches the White House. Ronald Reagan is president. Ronald Reagan says, I want him brought back here, and we got to get him back here at no cost, right? Mm-hmm. Well, another long story short, the, of course, the FBI director, the regional director in Denver goes to my police chief and said, Ray has no business going to Washington, D.C. and going to the CIA office and meeting with people without us knowing. And my chief back then, pretty astounding guy, Ralph Smith, apparently he had a meeting with one of his commanders and the FBI was there. And my chief gets upset and he says, you know what? He says, some of my men has been as far as Wyoming and back, and we don't need your permission. So if my officers want to go out of state. They can go out of state. We don't need your permission. And he kind of ran them out of his office. So they they demanded that I would be terminated from my job because of this. They wanted me fired. So there was a mission there to all of a sudden to silence this thing at all costs because it was really getting exposed to the media. And so a long story short, again, is one of the U.S. attorneys who was slamming me in the paper once in a while, but one of the U.S. attorneys ends up meeting with Edwin Wilson in Italy. They arranged for an agreement to have a meeting to talk about a plea bargain on his case to try to settle the matter. 
So Edwin Wilson flies into Italy and the U.S. flies into Italy. The Edwin Wilson gets on the airplane with the U.S. attorney and they have this little conference room in the airplane. And while they're having this meeting, they shut the doors and they take off flying back to the United States. They kidnapped him. Oh, my gosh. And they took him back to the United States. He stood trial. He was found guilty. And he went to prison for 20 years. But in the meantime, before this trial even happened, Kevin Mulcahy was one of the key witnesses, along with another person who worked for the CIA, was a key witness against Edwin Wilson. Two weeks, both of them, two weeks before the trial, Kevin Mulcahy was found dead outside of a cottage in Washington, D.C., and it said he died of exposure. Well, the weather that night, the low was 54 degrees. He's not dying of weather exposure. So what kind of exposure are we talking about? And that's all it would say. The other key witness was on a boat in the Keys, in the Florida Keys, and as all of a sudden when he was out on his boat, the boat blew up, killed him. So both witnesses were killed two weeks before the trial. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Was this Quintero? Am I remembering the name correctly, or is that somebody else that was on the boat? I, I don't remember his name. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. Yeah, I did some reading. There's a lot of names associated with this. It was hard for me to keep them straight. I mean, we could do an entire episode just on Wilson. Yes. Certainly. Well, uh, Wilson uh, was given 20 years. Wilson was trying to appeal his case. He won an appeal and the court determined that he needed to have a new trial or dismiss the case. And this is Wilson's 19th year in prison. So the court granted him to be released. And before he released, he, he was found dead. In his jail. Really? Now, they're saying, oh, he had a a medical thing that went wrong. Well, yeah. And what's his name committed suicide, right? Hmm. Who's the guy that's that's got everybody in his little island? Oh, Epstein. Epstein, yeah. yeah, Right? And he committed suicide. Not too many people believe that either. But And I can't think, but it's ironic that Edwin Wilson is found dead just before he's released. Mm -hmm. So... So that's kind of a, you're really getting a story in a nutshell, but there's even so much more in between there that it's, it's absolutely amazing how this thing unfolds. Right. So I want to, I want to go back for a moment to Tafoya and you executed the, the search warrant on his house. You found this mountain of evidence. Why in the world would he be holding onto all of this stuff six months after, after the shooting? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Did he have any kind of logic behind that or was he just incredibly sloppy? I think he was incredibly sloppy. I think I think he did a lot of drinking, and I just he just didn't clean up be, behind himself. And why he's using a credit card, no idea. You know, because that that revealed a lot by itself. The phone records we got a hold of all his phone records and the calls that he had made, and 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 he saved some of these telexes that had the code names on it. So we had it very well covered. Hmm. Yeah, incredible. He, he does seem, from what I read, he was pretty down on his luck by that point after he had left the military. He had a, you know, some honorable service in Vietnam. I think I've read that he had three Purple Hearts yeah. from overseas and a Bronze Star with for Valor. Mm-hmm. But yeah, things things kind of fell apart for him after that. Yeah. So did he give an alibi? Did he say yes? I mean, did he confess? Did he say he was, you know, somewhere else? He, he, what did he say? He during claimed the he was working for the CIA and he was working on behalf of the United States and protecting our country. That was his defense. Oh, wow. Okay. So he thought he was on a mission, not 
committing a crime? No, I mean, think I, it was like a sanctioned kind of deal. I don't believe that at all. I mean, when you're getting paid cash like that, if you're really doing it for your country, well, first of all, why are you taking so much cash? And the cash that he's getting is cash from what we can tell. It wasn't a, a check from the United States government or the CIA right, or anything. Right. So it just, everything's under the table and he, he never brings that alibi up till towards the last. And that's when Walter Garash, the defense attorney basically told him that's the, that's the alibi you got to use. That was never brought up during his interviews that we had or anything that was said. And there's nothing in his sloppy work at home that indicates that he was working for the CIA. Nothing in mm -hmm. there. Okay. Okay. I see. So you mentioned earlier the trials for tax evasion and for the firebombing in Canada, but those came after his uh, attempted murder trial in Colorado. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And, and it was a very clear cut case and the jury haggled over it. Some jury members want all charges found guilty. Some were ambivalent about one or two charges and, and then some didn't want any charges at all. They didn't think he was guilty at all. So they reached a compromise and they found him guilty of a third degree assault, which is tantamount to me punching you in the arm. Oh my gosh. So he shot Faisal twice in the head right. and was convicted. That's like a, a misdemeanor, isn't it? It is a misdemeanor. Yes, absolutely. Wow. And the most you can get on that misdemeanor is two years in county jail, which the judge gave him two years. The judge, he was flabbergasted himself. Oh my gosh. Was that including like time served or anything, or did he do two years in prison after the trial? No, that include time served. Oh man. No. So he skated in a big way off of this in that case, huh? Well, as soon as he got out of there, that's when we, he got taken into custody, taken to trial in Canada where he, oh, okay, where he served another two years. In the meantime, we're working on a trial for him for income tax evasion down in El Paso. So we were working with the IRS and the IRS during trial found him guilty and they gave him another five years. Okay. Yeah. He was in and out of prison quite a bit and, and try and court and jail mm -hmm. and everything for right. a number of years there through the eighties. Yeah. Then he eventually died of cancer. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. Yeah. I saw he was, I think it was 97 or so. He didn't, he was like 61 or something when he passed away. I think not very old yeah. at all. Yeah. Oh man. So after prison, did he just keep a, a low profile? I mean, did he, you know, have any other run-ins with the law or anything like that? No, there was no books that he wrote or anything like that. And hmm. it was just, you're right. He just kind of kept a, kept a low profile. I, you know, I imagine he did still heavy drinking and things like that, but. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned his attorney, Walter Garash. I mean, did he have great attorneys that helped him get out of that attempted murder charge? Well, Walter Garash a... was known as a very flamboyant attorney. And uh, I think. Walter Grass saw this as an opportunity to get some press, which he did. He'd parade around in, mm -hmm. a, in a green beret hat and, you know, just to make a scene. It was really about Walter Grass. And he was doing mm -hmm. a case pro bono because he wanted to protect a man that loved his country, you know, and, and that kind oh, of man. thing. He, he's just drawing attention to himself because that obviously would get him bigger cases. Sure, sure. I mean, his, some of that seems to have paid off for Tafoya at the very least, then if he was yeah. only, you know, did two years after that's incredible. Right. So what about the, the Zagalis? I mean, were they, I know that he was shot. So he, you said he was permanently blind in his right eye after that Faisal was. Yes. And that bullet still sits in his mouth. Oh, they couldn't even remove it. No, oh my gosh. They said it was too dangerous to remove. Okay. 
No, so I, did he have to testify? I mean, was he able to testify in the trial? Oh, yes, he testified. <laughs> and it was Some scenes of that trial were very humorous because the defense attorney was talking about questions about, you know, who shot who and what, you know. And, and Pfizer goes, he says, in front of the jury, he says, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? Pointing at Tafoya, he said, he's the one that did the shooting. Ask him that question. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and it wow. just got a little out of control. And then there was a point in time during the trial, which was heavily guarded. We had a lot of security because of the threats. I, I had personally received threats about this and phone calls, anonymous phone calls that I better stay away from this case. And, you know, I'm, I'm just assuming that that was probably the CIA or the FBI. Some people think, oh, how could that be? But it, it, you, you live in this world and you, you'll understand. And conversations that I was having with people on my personal home phone, the FBI asked me questions about, so I knew they had my phone tapped. I'm, oh, I'm sure of that. So I started working from phone booths. Uh, we had phone booth numbers that we pegged that uh, I would talk to Kevin Mulcahy from. So they didn't know what phone booth we were calling from. So I didn't use my mm-hmm. home phone anymore. Golly. Uh, how did you, I mean, how did you deal with that? It must've been an incredibly stressful period of your life, kind of not knowing, you know, which way is up. It sounds like. It was stressful. And, and every morning I'd go look into my car and just check out and make sure it wasn't booby trapped or something. Because <laughs> that's, that's a very serious feeling. Wow. Did, did all of this kind of go away once uh, the trial was over? Did you have any, was there any backlash or aftermath to all of this for you personally or for the, you know, Fort Collins PD? Pretty much it, it went away. I, I think there were some internal struggles with the commanders because the chief wanted me to answer to him about the case and how it was going. And I think, you know, my commanders were a little bit, you know, standoffish with me because of that. And it, it just... You know, egos got in the way, which is very typical in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. So the the Zagalis, did they stay in Fort Collins or did they go back to Libya? Any idea of what happened to them afterwards? The nearest I can tell is that I think now Faisal's in Saudi Arabia. Farida is still doing some work with the United Nations overseas. Oh, okay. Hmm. Interesting. So they haven't been around for years and years then, I take it. No, they haven't. But we have stayed in touch occasionally. It's been a long time since I last heard from them, but there's it's like a hit and miss. But occasionally mm-hmm. we, we do stay in touch. Oh, wow. Fantastic. They made it out okay. Do you have any reason to believe that they were targeted again after the failed hit or were any other Libyans targeted in the United States around that time period that you know of? I don't think so, but a lot of students, and we know this, a lot of students that went to Greeley, Colorado, or for Collins University at CSU, uh, a lot of those students were considered uh, agents for Muammar Gaddafi. They enrolled them in school to spy on other Libyan students there. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So from what I was reading, Faisal and Farida, they came over on a, on like a scholarship from the Gaddafi government initially. Right. And, you know, he was trying to, you know, bring like, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, educate people in foreign countries and then bring them back to help grow the economy of, of Libya and all that. But then once they turned against him, that was it. Oh, yes. And so yeah. they had been in his good graces up until they started speaking out against his, you know, dictatorial regime. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I see. And, you know, it's amazing what you said about your concerns about that the CIA was still involved, because as I recall with Edwin Wilson, he was sentenced to, I think, 52 years overall, but only did 22 because on appeal, 
his lawyer was able to prove that even after he left the CIA, even after he left Department of the Navy, he had been working with the CIA and had like something like 80 meetings with them or 80 separate contacts with them when he was supposed to be only a, you know, international arms trafficker, but they were still very much in contact. Yeah. See, I didn't, I didn't know that part of it because, you know, oh, once really? the case okay. was finished, I just kind of like left aside. I, I even tried to call Edwin Wilson. I called him in Libya and he answered the phone. What? Oh yeah. Wow. And wow, wow, wow. Well, I don't leave nothing unturned. I, I thought the worst, <laughs> the worst thing that can happen is that he, he doesn't talk to me or that he doesn't answer the phone, but he did answer the phone. He talked to me and, and he told me, he says, I don't know you. I'm not going to talk to you. And he hung up on me. Man. Yeah, that appeal wasn't until like 1999 or 2000 or something like that. It was long after all of this was mm-hmm. was over and done in Colorado. But yeah, I, I found that quite fascinating. He was a guy that I guess I was trying to understand. You know, one of the things I don't understand, I suppose, is that Gaddafi was always our adversary right from the beginning. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were not supporting him in any way. I would think that, you know, quite frankly, the CIA has a history of supporting people like Faisal and Farida, you know, these potential government exile people that might lead a coup against a, a dictator that we do not like, that we want right. to overthrow. Exactly. So I'm really shocked that he was on their bad list and they did nothing to support or help at all because he <laughs> normally fits the profile of people that we would want to be in touch with. Right. Right. I say we, I mean, they, of course. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting stuff. My gosh. Yeah. I think also there were a number of students and other Libyan exiles who were killed in Europe around the same time, but like earlier in 1980, there was a spate of killings there, but Zagali was the first one who was targeted here in the United States anyway, which is very different ballgame than Europe. Well, it was very interesting, very telling. When I went to Scotland Yard and spoke with their number two guy, John Guy, he just flat out told me, he said, we, the FBI has not reached us at all and asked anything about it. And so I got a lot of information from them. They're very helpful and willing to help us in any way that they could. So the the Scotland Yard was a great experience to work with them. Okay, great. And that's good to know. I wasn't aware of that. What an amazing case. I'll tell you what, it just really gets your head spinning. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That Edwin Wilson. I mean, we've, this is only one aspect, honestly, of everything that he did. I've been reading up quite a bit on him as well. And he was, I know he was very much, I don't know if I'd say in Gaddafi's pocket, or vice versa, maybe, but he had a lot of fingers and a lot of pies, and he was responsible and willing to do a whole lot of things all over the world. It's really a crazy story. Well, and and there's even information, we, we had found this out, that supposedly Edwin Wilson was in Dallas when Kennedy was shot, and the day he was shot, he flew out of Dallas. Really? I had not heard that. Man, oh man. I don't know if we'll ever truly get to the bottom of that entire situation. Honestly, there there are so many loose ends out there and so many different points of view and, you know, different parts of information. It's really hard to draw it all together, but man, it really gets you thinking. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Incredible stuff. Well, Ray, yeah, this is an amazing story. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it. Are you still staying busy with all those things I mentioned at the beginning with your advisory boards and everything? I take it you are. I very much am. You know, I'm a veteran myself, and I'm a, the president of a, a nonprofit organization called Healing Warriors, and we treat and help veterans and active duty people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. So that's a very important side of okay, what fantastic. I do. And, and I sit on a board of directors of a credit union called Elevations Credit Union. So I, I just, I got a lot of things going on, sitting with the Crime Stoppers board as well. 
Oh, wow. Fantastic. So I know that you've written a lot of books. Have you written about this or have you written about your police career at all? You know, I, I did write one book about uh, your personal safety and your fight against burglars. Uh, as one of my first books that came out in 95. But I have not written about this case. I've wanted to, but I've been hesitant and reluctant just because I worry about the ramifications and uh, knowing, you know, who's listening and who's watching and what, what happens. I, I just, mm-hmm. just a little side of me that's hesitant. So I've probably told you more than I've told anybody else. <laughs> wow. I appreciate it. You know, I, I have read a lot of articles about this in preparation for this interview, and you definitely provided some details that I could not find anywhere else. I can tell you that much. So I think the listeners will be very grateful for that as well. Well, it's always good to know the truth. And there was an old saying by, said by a famous guy, so the truth will set you free. <laughs> definitely will. Well, well, thank you so much, Ray. This has been really incredible. So do you have a, a website or social media profiles or anything like that if people want to kind of follow along or, or get to know a little bit more about you? Yes, I'm on Facebook and my website is raymartinez.com. And I'm on Instagram as well. It's just my name's not hidden out there. And okay. uh, Twitter uh, or X as we know it now. Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. Well, I'm on Instagram too. So I'm going to give you a follow as soon as I get off the line here with you. Okay. Sounds great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ray. This has been an incredible talk. It's it's really, really got me thinking, I have to admit. And I think that everybody's going to feel that same way. So thank you for your time. If this occurred in 1980, you know, there's much more going on today. Oh, I, I know it. That's one of the things I focus so much on, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, because things get declassified and, you know, people retire and they write their memoirs and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I know that 90% of what is going on in this, you know, aspect of the world is hidden right now. We truly have no idea the forces at work in a lot of places all over the world That's at right. this very moment. That's right. So maybe we'll know in 50 years, but not before that, probably. Well, take care, stay, stay safe. And, you know, Watch out because uh, the government and people, they're listening and they're watching. No doubt about it. Well, thank you so much, Ray. Take care. All right. Take care. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.